It is so good again to be together, isn't it, in God's house, singing His praise. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter what type of week we've come from, whether it's a difficult week, a, a great week. It's just wonderful to come into a place with God's people where we can celebrate the goodness of God in our lives. And, and somehow in these moments together, in our fellowship with one another, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, something takes place. We get refocused. Our lives get, get recalibrated back to where God wants it to be. And then we can go on into a new week full of hope ready for what we're going to meet with him at the center of it all. So it's so good and so important. And I know sometimes it's an effort to come, you know, and make time in your week to come together collectively as God's people. It can be an effort, but you know what? It's worth it. And the Bible tells us never to forsake the assembling together of the saints. And that's what we're doing this morning. We are together in his presence, in his house. Amen. Well, do you know, as I was um, thinking about what I'm going to say this morning, my mind went back over the last past weeks that we've been looking at Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6, where Paul talks about the glorious grace of God. God's grace is glorious. It truly is. It's, it's absolutely glorious. And Paul, on many occasions, trying to describe this grace, uses many different phrases and many types of pictures in order to describe it. But it's so hard to try and put into words something that's indescribable. It really is. But when you look through the Word of God, when you, when you look at the testimonies of lives that this grace, this glorious grace has touched, you can truly see its power. You can see its wonder. You can see why it's so indescribable, but the results of it are amazing, truly are. It was John Newton that wrote that amazing song, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, he says in his hymn. A, a hymn that's, that's been sung many, many times throughout the centuries. Amazing grace. Paul calls it glorious, glorious grace. And we said that one of the outcomes of that grace, one of the results of grace working in your life is that You've been made acceptable to God in Christ Jesus. Away with the guilt, away with the shame, away with all of the pity parties, away with all of the reasons why God would reject you, away with this thinking that God is angry with you. No, he's not angry with you. No, he's not putting up with you. No, you're not something under God's foot. No, he's not suspicious of you. No, he's not waiting out there in your future in order to strike you down. No, God loves you. God's glorious grace is continuing flowing towards you, and it's the glorious grace of God that's made you accepted in the beloved. Can you accept that? 
That's the question that we've been asking. Can you accept that you, your life is acceptable to God without question? There will never be a moment in eternity. There will never be a moment in all time and all eternity where God ever questions your acceptance before Him because this is what glorious grace has achieved through the wonderful sacrificial work of Christ Jesus on the cross through His death in His resurrection. This is the wonder that God has achieved for your life and my life. We're accepted. And we have to accept that we've been accepted in the beloved. Now, when I was thinking about, you know, what I was going to say today, my mind went back to a time when my children were little. We've got four kids. They keep you busy. You want to have kids? You haven't got any kids? Well, welcome to a busy life. Kids keep you busy. You go on an adventure and an amazing adventure. And what a blessing they are to have. But my mind went back to a time when, you know, my kids were but toddlers. And every morning, they would wake up and they'd run into the bedroom. It'd usually be, you know, quarter to six or just after six. Daddy, daddy, come on. It's time to get up. And I'd, you know, kind of pull myself out of bed like you do. I'd wipe my eyes and I'd struggle downstairs. They'd already be downstairs in the living room raiding the arts and crafts box. Oh my goodness, they loved arts and crafts. They'd pull all the paints out on the table. And, um, you know, I'd grab some paper and I'd quickly put it on the table. Because I'm telling you now, if you didn't put the, if you didn't put the paper on the table, they were going to paint anyway. So that the, pa- the paper would go out on the table. And immediately, you know, the... the the paint would go onto their palettes, their little palettes. They'd grab brush in hand and they'd start to paint furiously. And they wouldn't, you know, it's, it's wonderful, isn't it, how unlimited children are. They, they, they're so expressive. Their art couldn't be contained to the edges of the page. They had to show daddy and one another how they could paint the table. And even under the table and down the legs, on the floors, sometimes they'd even be painting daddy. Oh, it's wonderful. They put paint in your hair. I mean, I've had it all. I've had it all. They paint themselves, paint the floor, paint the walls. And I'm telling you now, if they could have reached the ceiling, they would have done a Michelangelo number on the ceiling. It was wonderful to behold. You know, Week after week, month after month, we would just go through this routine. They'd want to go downstairs, raid the arts and crafts, pull out the paint, and start painting. And we did it day after day, week after week. But one thing I noticed, one day when we were, you know, just busy painting, was that the kids were only using the bright colors. They were only using, you know, the fluorescent greens and the, the, the fluorescent yellows and the, the, the pinks and the, the reds, the brightest colors. That's all they wanted to use. The blacks and the browns and the grays and the, the beiges. 
They were all pushed aside. They were never used. So one day I thought, do you know what? I'm going to test the kids out. I'm going to find out why they aren't using these, these other colors. I said, hey, guys, why don't you try this, this black or this brown or this beige? Oh, no, Dad, we're not interested in those colors. I said, come on. Use these colors. No, we don't like that. We don't like painting with those colors. We only like painting with the bright colors. I mean, if you're going to paint the table or put paint on the wall, you want it to be the brightest color so it stands out more than any other. They only like to use the bright colors. Around this time, Faye and I took a needed break, let's say. To London on our own no kids the kids were with the grandparents we'd forgotten how life was without kids so anyway we head to London and um, we you know we have the usual tours and the walk around that you that you do in London when you're there and it was great and then for the first time we stopped by the National Portrait Gallery what an amazing place. I mean, my only exposure to art was, you know, the pictures that me and the kids were drawing on the page, on the table, down the legs, and on the walls. But when I walked into the National Portrait Gallery, oh my goodness, I realized that another world existed. And in that gallery hangs the world's most foremost paintings, the world's most foremost works of art from the greatest of artists. As you go around that gallery, what you will see is pictures that use the whole palette of color. Artists that know and skillfully use every shade, not just the bright colors, not just the luminous colors that are bold, and striking, but the great artists of our world have a skill and an understanding to use every color available to them on the palette. And the greatest of pictures is a collection of many, many colors, not just a collection of three or four bright ones, some of the greatest pictures capture the darkest colors, the blacks and the browns and the beiges. And all of these colors that we would put aside as unuseful as we were. Do you know there's a very simple message about life in that simple story? And especially in, which, uh, in the culture in which we live. Because sometimes life will tell you, and especially social media will tell us that, you know what? If you're going to show off your life, you can only show the bold, bright colors about your life in order for it to be accepted, in order for it to receive a like. You can only show your great side. You can only show the bright side. You can only show the most beautiful parts. But we all know by experience in this room, that life doesn't just have the bright colors, the great colors, the bold and the beautiful colors. No, life on life's palette are 
many colors. And sometimes you and I don't have the brush in our hand. Sometimes on the canvas of your life, the brush of life, the brush of circumstance brings a dark black color across the canvas, a beige, arid flavor, and you just don't want it. I don't want it. I think in the grand scheme, in the grand picture of my life, that, that shade doesn't belong on the canvas. My life must be bold and beautiful. My life must have all of these wonderful colors in order for it to be attractive and complete. But no, life, life is, is, is an unusual thing. It's an unpredictable thing. Life uses many, many different colors available to it. And all of these colors in their various forms, both, both the, 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 the bright and the attractive colors, but also those negative dark colors, they all hold value in the canvas of your life and my life. Maybe this is what Paul was talking about in Romans 8, 28. Let's read it. He says this, and this is a great apostle. This is a man that has understanding about life and all of its various facets. He says this, and we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What is Paul saying? He's saying our lives are not constructed by chance and mishap. Our lives are just not a series of endless circumstances. Because we love God, the great artist, the great architect, the great workman uses all things and he has an ability to work all things together for our good. He's saying that God can take the bright elements, the colorful elements about our lives and use them on the canvas of our, of, of our life. But also he can take for his glory those colors that we would not rather be there, those colors that, that we would despise, those colors that we would push aside and not want on the page, those colors that we would relegate under lock and key, it's those very things, maybe shameful things, maybe things that we would never want to remember, even those things God has an ability to take up and work together for good, for your good, on the canvas of your life. Paul calls this, listen, glorious grace. This is what glorious grace can do. It's unimaginable. It's unthinkable what it can do. In fact, in Ephesians, he says that... that that it's exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think in its ability, in its reach, in, in what it can do in our lives. It's glorious grace that can take every aspect of life, every aspect of your history and make you everything that God has intended you to be in Christ Jesus. Only glorious grace 
can do that. So when Paul uses this phrase, glorious grace, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, it is packed, it is loaded. Don't just skip over it and, you know, you know pass on from it. There, it is impregnated with incredible meaning and reach. This glorious, this glorious grace, this phrase that Paul uses, reaches right into the Old Testament and all the way through it and into the New Testament through Jesus' ministry as he, as he lifted people up from where they were. It reaches. Its scope is endless. And it hasn't finished with you and me. It's glorious grace. Glorious grace. There's lots of terms that Paul and the other apostles use in relation to grace in order to try and describe it. You're on a mission to failure to try and describe grace. It's indescribable, but they use phrase after phrase in order to try and bring our understanding into it. Paul, in verse 6, calls it glorious grace in Acts 4. There's another shade, another facet of this grace that's brought to our attention. They say, it's abundant grace. It's glorious grace. And because it's glorious grace, it's abundant grace. Then on into Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter calls it manifold grace. And by that, he's saying this. It's many, it has many sides. It has many different colors. It comes at your life from every direction. From every direction, it meets you. It's a manifold grace. It's an all-encompassing grace. That's why it's glorious. And then in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about an all, or God reveals to Paul that it's an all-sufficient grace. Sufficient for every life circumstance. What's hindering you today? What's chasing you today? What's haunting you today? There's an all-sufficient grace that's, that will enable you, that will bring you through every trial, that will take you through every difficulty on life's road. That's because God loves you. He's not going to withhold this glorious grace, this abundant grace, this all-sufficient grace from your life. No, it's there. All-sufficient means it's more than enough. The supply is endless. It's eternal because God is its source. Wonderful. Amazing. Amazing. And this grace flows to us. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, it's by grace that we've been saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves, lest any man should boast. It's not a work of the flesh. It's a simple act of trust in what Jesus has done. And as a result of that, the gift of this grace comes in the form of salvation to enable us to do everything and be everything God's called us to be. Wonderful. Now over this week and next week, maybe the week after, who knows? We're going to look. We're going to see practically how glorious grace can be. We're going to look at the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. 
And not only will you see how glorious grace can be, you will see that it can be abundant. You will see that it can be all sufficient in that it covers everything. Every need that we might have in relation to our past, in relation to our present, in relation to the securities that we need for our future. God's grace is the answer to it and it covers every detail of our lives. Now when you look, we're going to start, when you look into Luke chapter 15, just by way of introduction, Jesus is with friends. These friends are sinners and tax collectors. And he's having a great time. He's just enjoying himself. He's received them. He's, in, he's actually invited them to be with him. And everybody's having a great time together. These aren't church people singing church songs, dressed in church clothes, looking all churchy. These are your out-and-out sinners. Jesus is there relaxing away, man, just enjoying it. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees start looking at Jesus and inspecting what he's doing. And they begin to criticize him. And, and, and they begin to, to, to complain and grumble. Oh, grumbling. It wasn't that funny. Grumblers, grumbling because of who he was with and who he was accepting and who he was embracing. So to help this religious, hard-nosed, hard-hearted audience, Jesus comes up with three little stories. The first two we may look at next week. We're going to look at the third one today. He begins to tell this story about this kid that's born in his father's house. He has no need. Everything's provided for him. Jesus begins to tell an extreme story about the life of this young man and how extreme grace comes his way and restores everything that he loses. Let's read Luke chapter 15, verse 11 to verse 24. Jesus talking. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that fall to me. So the father divided to them his livelihood. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions or everything, just wasted everything that the father had given him with prodigal, wild living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to be a citizen. Or he joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And the young lad would have gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, but no one would give him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, 
How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. And when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead. For this my son was dead and is alive again. And he was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now, this is an extreme story because Jesus wants to capture the attention of all of the religious critics that were surrounding him and condemning the people that Jesus liked to be with. Jesus was with friends. Jesus was among those that needed him most. And this religious crowd around Jesus were looking down their nose at the people that Jesus was trying to reach. So Jesus, in true Jesus style, tells the most simplest of stories to demonstrate His grace and His love and the power of His life and mission to reach that which was lost. Begins to tell him about this kid who walks into his dad's office one, one day and, you know, puts some demands down about his inheritance that he knows that the father one day would give him. He wants it early. Give me, he says. This young man says, give me. There's, there's no pleasantries. There's no, you know, build up. He just walks in and suddenly asks for something that the father was shocked by. Give me the portion of goods that fall to me. Now, this in itself, to everybody that was listening, was striking. It was extreme, and Jesus wanted it to be striking and extreme. He wanted to wake them up. He wanted to rattle their cage. They're looking at him, wondering what the outcome of all of this is going to be, because according to the law, this young man right there should have been stoned to death as a result of dis dishonoring his father. When he went in and said to his father, give me the portion of goods that fall to me, he was actually telling his dad that he wanted him to die. He'd lost respect for him. He didn't want to be in his home anymore. He had no value for his upbringing and his Jewish heritage. He wanted to turn his back on it. He wanted to cut ties with everything that represented his home, 
his history and his heritage. Give me the portion of goods that fall to me. Now, many fathers would turn around and you know what? They put their son in their place. How dare you? I mean, even in our culture, it's not even far from our culture. If a child comes and asks their parents or, or, or you know, a young person, mid-twenties, excuse me, the inheritance I know that you're keeping for me, that you've planned to give me one day, I want it now. I mean, what would a parent think of that? I mean, the message is clear. And Jesus wanted it to be extreme. So he tells this story. The kid is rebellious. The kid is demanding. Give me my portion. It's self-centered. The father could have turned around to the kid and said, listen, who do you think you are? You're still wet behind the ears, man. It was only last week I was changing your nappies and feeding you that bottle. Get back out into the field and learn something about life. Give me, he says. Proverbs says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And there it is personified, foolishness, facing the father, demanding, ordering, Asking the father for an inheritance early, and it was sending a message out. I don't want to be associated with you anymore. I've got no respect for all of the times that, that, that you brought me up in this home. I've got no respect for it. I want you dead. Give me my money. I want to be out of here. Now, that's one thing to say that caught their attention. But the next thing is even more striking because the father submits to the son. The father gets a meeting with the two sons and he divides the portion of his goods and he distributes it, distributes it to them. Everybody's attention is fixed on Jesus. They don't really know where he's going because now the father has broken laws. The father should have disciplined his son. But the gracious heart of the father releases the portion to the son, even though he knew that the son couldn't handle it. Even though he knew that the son's future was not going to be good as a result of having this wealth. Not many days after, Jesus told them that this kid goes on a journey. He now wants to vent all of the hidden desires within his heart. He wants to leave the restrictions of his father's house. And Jesus says he goes to a far land. He wants to get away as far as he can from the father. He's gotten what he wants, and now he's going to live the dream, so he thinks. But I'll tell you something now. If you don't come under the discipline of a father in the home, You'll come under the discipline of circumstance and life. And one way or the other, life will be your tutor. Whether it's in a home of grace and love, where you receive correction and discipline, or whether it's out there in the world. I'm telling you now, God would rather us be disciplined by one another and receive the discipline and the instruction and the teaching that comes from the exchange of life and fellowship in the house of God. 
I've seen people come into this church like you have. And this isn't criticism. I'm telling you now, when people do this, it breaks my heart like it breaks your heart. And God blesses their life and God restores them and God makes them everything that he's called them to be. And then suddenly one day, off they go. Pockets loaded. Life loaded with blessing. Yet they fail to realize that that blessing is to enable them to flourish in the house of God. This kid goes out and he's having a good time. No doubt about that. He's, you know, squandering his wealth. That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus says. He squandered his inheritance. Now, the father didn't just give him cold, hard cash. He gave him heirlooms that had been passed down to him that he could pass on to his children as he did with his son. The son took those goods and he didn't need them. They had no value to him. He didn't see the sense in holding them. So he goes down to cash generators. You mean in cash generators? He goes down to cash generators and he lays these heirlooms on the, on the counter. He said, what will you give me for them? Well, they're looking for a bargain. They can see that it's going to be a good buy. A good buy with a low price. And he gets some cash. Because heirlooms aren't going to give him the, the, the key to the doors and the environments that he wants to get into. He needs cold, hard cash. So he, tra he trades the most valuable possessions. He trades... The heirlooms that his father had given him for some cash. And then he just squanders it. He squanders it. And suddenly all the friends that he'd had in that foreign country begin to leave him when his money runs out. Let me tell you. Let me ask you something. Are your friends there for you? When you don't have anything left to give them. Are your friends there? Are your friends with you? When you have nothing to bring to the party. Nothing to offer. A true friend. Sticks by us in all seasons of life. In the highs and the lows. It matters not. And this kid quickly found out. That he didn't really have any friends. Suddenly with no money. The famine strikes. The famine hits. And now he's going to get taught. Now life is going to teach him. Now he's going to come under the tutorage of another instructor. That's not, so, not, so, not, not as gracious as God is. Your parents tell you not to take drugs. What do they know, old fogies? Your, te your parents tell you not to have sex before marriage. What do they know? Come on, live the dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your parents tell you not to drink alcohol. 
Oh, I, I tell you what, life is so boring. So boring. Just saying. That's the way we do it in our home. Well, you can either receive instruction from a good parent, nice home, or you can go out into the brutal, harsh realities of life. I'm telling you, I've seen it with my own eyes. This is not a religious service. I'm not a religious person. And I'm telling you now, I've seen it. I saw a young girl one day years ago, a beautiful girl. And I said to her, I said, my love, Jesus loves you very much. Oh, man, come on. Jesus, I've, I've got to live life, man. I said, listen, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's got everything there for you. No, I'm just going to do it my way. Do you know, I often see that girl. Her life has been taken and robbed from her by many things. I used to work with a man many years ago. I used to say, I won't say his name. Let's, let's call him Steve. Steve, Jesus loves you. Steve, Jesus loves you. Don't give me that rubbish. Jesus is a joke, man. Jesus loves you, Steve. Mate, look, he can forgive you. I don't need forgiveness. The arguments, you know, it just came thick and fast. I just, just trying to help the guy. Because I know that if you don't come under the corrective hand of God's grace, under God's glorious grace, then you'll come under the harsh realities of life, and that is not nice. One day, he walks home, and he finds out that his wife, that he loved, is addicted to crack cocaine, and to pay for the habit, she's been prostituting herself. Do you know that man, right? That man was my friend. That man was my friend. And do you know, that man just, listen, just run off. He just ran off. No, nobody knows where he is. And um, do you know what? He found out that day that Jesus wasn't a joke. Jesus is a savior. He's not a joke. We can joke about, about Jesus. And yeah, man, maybe, maybe I'll have Jesus. Maybe I won't. Who knows? I'm telling you now, Jesus is a savior. He offers a lifeline. And, and Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Follow me. You've got to follow him. You've got to run after him. You've got to make a decision. And this kid left his dad's house, squandered everything. And he was in a mess. Life was teaching him. And he ended up, the Bible says, in a pig sty. That's where Life took him. Life promises you lots of things. Life promises us a bright future. Life promises us all kinds of spectacular things. I'm telling you now, there is only one way through this life, and it's asking Christ to be the center of your life, and for Christ to be the Lord of your life. 
It really is. And that's true. Listen, my friends, I know I'm speaking it today, but I'm telling you now, it's as true for me as it is for you. It really is. I'm going to ask the musicians to come. Boys ask me today, Joe and John always ask me, how long you want today? I always say to them, 30 minutes. But I said to them today, two hours. Come on. Let's go the full hog. Two hours. No, we're going we're gonna to take up some of these things. There's so much in this amazing story that, that come from this story that, that Jesus gives to us. Kids in the pigsty. Kids in the pigsty. There's nothing like a pigsty to deal with rebellion. There's nothing like the harsh realities of life to correct you. I can talk to you all day about my pigsties and how they've corrected me, decisions that I've made. I'm not barking off at anybody this morning. I'm talking about me. Because when you look at this, we're not reading the story about somebody in ancient history that Jesus told about. We're looking in a mirror and we're looking at our own lives right in this story. And right in that pigsty, the Bible says, and this is amazing, it says, he came to himself, he, he came to his senses. Crazy. That right in that pigsty, he finds his right mind. So the question is this, where did he lose his mind? If he found his mind, if, he, if his senses were correct in the pigsty, where did he lose his thinking? He lost it in his father's house because he was blessed. And he took for granted what the house of his father had given him and provided for him. But he says, it says he came to his senses and he says, I, he said, I will rise, I will arise and go to my father's house. Maybe I can be a servant. A hired servant to do. And he goes on his way and the Bible says, as we've read, whilst he was a great way off, the father saw him and began to run to him. Wanted to reach him because his heart was burning with compassion. And you know, today, you may be in this place. You may be far away from God. Your life may be under that power of sin that you cannot relieve yourself of. I'm telling you now, Jesus comes running, running to you today. He really does. I'm going to pray right now. And maybe today, you're going to say, Jesus, I want to ask you into my life to be my Savior. I'm going to follow you. I want to follow you. I'm going to ask you to come into my heart and save me from my sin. Save me from the history that holds me. Save me from all of the things and forgive me for, for all of the things that I've done 
I'm telling you now, Jesus is going to be the Prince of Peace right here in your life as you do that. I'm going to ask for our eyes to be closed today. Maybe life is hard. Maybe life has been that fierce tutor that's brought you down, that's cut you up. Grace wants to be glorious in your life. The grace of God wants to be abundant in your life. The grace of God wants to be the all-sufficient power to make you everything that God's called you to be. I'm going to pray right now. Maybe you're here today. Pray this prayer right now, asking Jesus into your life. Respond right now to his love. Say this, quietly in your heart, pray it with me. Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you rose again. And because you're alive, I ask you to live in me, live in my heart. I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.